This is Easter Sunday, and we are continuing on through a series in Paul's letter to the Romans. We will be looking this morning in the first few verses of Romans chapter 6. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Romans, and I also understand there may be a few folks who are newer with us. We're going to do a little bit of recapping here in just a moment for all of our benefit. But by way of introduction, the latter section of Romans chapter 5, Paul had brought his teaching on justification to a clear and powerful conclusion. Justification being the way a sinner would be found righteous. The declaration of righteousness. God declaring a sinner, a lawbreaker, to be righteous, a lawkeeper. How is a sinner reconciled to God? Paul had made that quite plain and had brought it to a very powerful conclusion. He had made clear the universal guilt and depravity of the human race in Adam. And then he had clearly explained and extolled the gift of free salvation through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Having written that, Paul anticipates an objection. It is an age-old objection. If justification, if salvation is given through faith apart from works, if where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, May we not just continue in sin? According to natural human reason, no objection could be more plausible. You feel it. It hits. This objection is as common today as it was when Paul wrote these words nearly 2,000 years ago. And it will continue. This objection will continue until the Lord returns. The significance of Paul's answer to this objection, which is our subject matter today, the significance of his answer to this objection cannot be overstated. It is as important for our understanding of the Christian life as anything could be. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking today at Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. I promised you we would do a little bit of flyover, a little bit of recap, and so that's what we're going to do as you're making your way to Romans 6, 1. Paul began the body of his letter to the Romans by announcing the one way of salvation, God's way of saving sinners. The gospel, the good news, reveals the righteousness that God gives to sinners that is entirely of faith. Paul then demonstrates why and how this is the only way of salvation. Because all mankind, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, all mankind is under sin. All human beings are guilty and utterly incapable of being justified on their own obedience, on their own steam. Paul then explains and he heralds God's remedy to man's condition. And the way in which it is applied. The remedy, of course, is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
He fulfilled the requirements of the law. He kept it. And he endured its curse. He paid its penalty. And what he did is applied to sinners through faith, apart from works, apart from anything they have ever done, apart from anything they might ever do. Received by faith. And on account of Christ, we have peace with God. We have it. And that peace is not a fleeting peace. It's not a fragile peace. It's here today. It will be here tomorrow. We will have it before God at the end of the age. And Paul says that because of all this, we have eternal hope and joy. And he extols the love of God for us in it all. Then in verses 12 to 21 of Romans 5, Paul wrote of covenant representation. The two great representatives in human history, Adam and Jesus. Adam's sin is counted to all of his children. That means every human counted to all of us as our sin. His guilt is counted as our guilt. But much more than this, says the Apostle. Much more. Christ's righteousness, His obedience, His suffering are counted to us by faith. The free gift of Christ's righteousness is greater than what we received in Adam. It results in our justification. And it means that we will reign with Christ in eternal life. As by Adam's sin, everyone in Adam is condemned, so by Christ's righteousness, everyone in Christ is justified and will live forever. As by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by Christ's obedience, the many are made righteous. The law, says Paul, came in to increase the trespass, to show the sinfulness of sin, to show the depth of our corruption, and to show that we are sinful beyond measure. But as the sinfulness of sin was increased by the giving of the law, so the grace of God in Christ abounded all the more. Which brings us to Romans 6. Significant question before we read verses 1 to 4. How does Romans 6 fit in Paul's larger argument? In particular, how does Romans 6 relate to what came before it? Paul has argued beautifully and comprehensively for the doctrine of justification by faith, apart from works, by grace, apart from merit, on account of Christ alone. And Paul is now, beginning in Romans 6, 1, he is now going to demonstrate and prove the intimate and inextricable connection between the justification of believers and their sanctification. Justification, declared just, reconciled to God, peace with Him, Sanctification, the transformation of life being made more like their Savior. Those things 
are intimately and inextricably connected. This is important. I want you to have this in your minds. Many of you may have experienced this and you've not been able to put words to it, and that's fine. But there are two critical and very common errors that have existed through the history of the church and exist in our day when it comes to the relationship between justification and sanctification. One error is to collapse the two, to effectively conflate them, where effectively we are justified by our sanctification, at least in part. That's one error, to collapse them. The other error is to pull the two apart as though we can be justified and might not be sanctified because sanctification is something that we must do. With that in our minds, let's look to the Scriptures. This is the Word of God, beginning in Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. We thank God for His Word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time this morning is to to preach this message in two parts. Part one is simply a working through the text, a walk through the passage. Four verses won't take us an incredibly long time. Part two, I have three points of application and reflection. So we're going to look at the text, we're going to reflect and apply. I'll try to make it plain for us as we go. So let's look to the passage. Verse 1. What shall we say then? What should we conclude then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is the anticipation of the objection. This is the objection that Paul knows is coming to the doctrine that he's been unfolding and extolling. What conclusion should we draw then for our living? Paul has been writing of grace, unmerited favor, mercy, not getting what you deserve. The good news, the free gift, notice those words, free and gift of righteousness and eternal life. Only through the person and work of Christ. Jesus has done it all. He's made satisfaction for sins. He's fulfilled the requirement of God's law. He's been raised for our justification. He's alive and seated at the right hand of God and even now intercedes for the saints. And we have peace with God through Jesus by faith. Having been justified and reconciled to God in Christ, we most certainly will be saved by Jesus at the end of it all, says Paul. Just as Adam represented us all, so Christ represents everyone who's united to Him. Righteousness and eternal life are ours now and forever. It's over. Redemption accomplished. Redemption applied. Thus, the objection. 
You feel it. As has been said, it's a very old objection. It's as old as the good news. And it's not unique. Meaning, this is exactly the kind of objection that people raise according to human reason and the working of the flesh. Realize this. Own this. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that is preached regarding Christ sounds paradoxical to human judgment. Own it. It is no surprise and it is no new thing that upon hearing of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, the flesh would crash into stumbling stones all over the place. As for us, we stay the course. What does that mean? We don't allow Christ to be maligned. We don't allow Christ to be sold short. For those who are perishing, He is no doubt a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But for those who are being saved, beloved, He is a resurrection unto new life. A sweet thought for you, perhaps. This objection that Paul anticipates by the inspiration of the Spirit that he responds to in our passage makes way for him to spill ink that shows us more of the beauty of God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation is all wise. It is comprehensive. It is cohesive. And it is clearly God's work. Put your eyes on verse 2. Should we sin? Should we just continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, says Paul. He responds in this indignant way in order to drive home to his readers that nothing could be more absurd than that the grace of Christ would result in our sinning. As though Jesus, the one who satisfied for our sins and is our righteousness, would be the one to nourish our sinfulness and feed our corruption. Absurd. By no means, he says. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Rhetorical question. We can't. Right? In Christ, we've died to sin. We're free from its guilt. We're free from its tyranny, therefore. How could we then live in sin as though it still holds us like slaves? We can't. Think about this. We were said to once have been dead in sin. And now we are said to be dead to it. We were dead in it. Now we're dead to it. Through the death of Christ, we died to the law. The law no longer condemns us because Christ took that condemnation. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. That the power of sin is the law. Sin no longer has that condemning power over us. It won't ever have it again. God be praised. Just as Christ died to sin and lives to God, 
We also have died to sin in Christ and lived to God in Him. Verses 3 and 4. Paul now is going to prove what he's implied in verse 2. He's going to ground it. He appeals to baptism. Pretty striking. More pointedly, he appeals to what baptism signifies. And what is that? Union with Christ. In a phrase, that's what baptism is about. Union with Christ. More on that later. But the extent of that union, you can see this in the text. The extent of that union is so great that we are said by Paul to be united to Christ in his death. So it's not only that our sins are washed away. It is that our sin and our old man, the flesh, has been put to death in Christ as he was put to death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might be raised to new life. We are one with Christ in his death. We are one with Christ in his resurrection life. Now you see here in verse 4 this phrase that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Amen. And we say with the Scriptures, with Christ Himself, that He took His own life up again. This is Resurrection Sunday. The, uh, the Reformed Protestant in me always wants to say, you know, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. We do. Death, life, resurrection of Christ every week. And at the same time, in God's beautiful providence, here we are looking at a text like this on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The tomb is empty. And He was raised in that He took His own life up again. I lay it down of my own accord, He said, and I have authority to take it up again. This is because the power that raised Him from the dead is the divine power that belongs in common to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son was raised equally by His own power as by that of the Father because He possessed the divine nature as well as a human one. Why do I say that? Not only to exalt Christ as equal with the Father, but also to further demonstrate the force of Paul's answer here. He is effectively saying to us, Beloved, it is none other than the power of God that is at work in believers. The same divine power that resulted in Christ's resurrection is the same power that's at work in you. This is supernatural. We've said this many times. This isn't in my notes. I'll say it right now. Let's get it over with. The objection raised, should we just go on sinning, would make sense if Christianity was a natural thing. It isn't. It's supernatural. If it was a human endeavor, this objection makes sense. But as it stands, it's a work of God. What I'm about to say is significant. If you're a note taker, write it down. If you're not, you trust the Lord in that. The sanctification of believers rests on the same foundation 
and comes from the same source as their justification. That is union with Christ. The sanctification of believers rests on the same foundation and comes from the same source as their justification. That is union with Jesus Christ. That is Paul's answer to the objection in a sentence. Which brings us now to part two. Three points of application and reflection. Point one, no clever heading here. All we're going to do is apply and reflect on Paul's answer to the objection. We're just going to think more about this. Because this is a pivotal, if you feel some kind of intensity in me, this is because for myself and the other elders of the church, this issue is massive in its significance for the Christian life, for your assurance, for your peace, for your hope, for your joy, for your continuing on in the fight. So number one, we're going to apply and reflect on Paul's answer. Nothing happens in a vacuum. You understand that. You're thoughtful people. You're intelligent people. We live in an era of history that is a product of things that have come before us. A couple of things to bring to our minds just in brief. We live in the aftermath of a movement known as revivalism. Many in the room are aware of this. This was seen in the United States of America anyway, primarily in the awakenings of the 18th and 19th century, the revivals, the great revivals even, in the latter part of the 19th century. There is a problem that has been created by revivalism. Its methodology is unsound. It's outside of the local church, yes, but in addition to that, it represents the subjectivizing of religion and it puts a tremendous emphasis on a decision. The conversion moment becomes everything. And methods can be used to achieve the result. The ends justify the means, right? This is the M.O. of revivalism. This has produced a lot of bad fruit and wreckage in the church. There also is a legitimate problem that really developed in the latter part of the 20th century related to some of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, Zane Hodges being one of them, that we could call easy believism and legitimate antinomianism, where you get this teaching that by one act of faith, by one decision you make, you're good. Once saved, always saved. Right? This is where that nomenclature comes from. One act of faith saves you. Doesn't matter how you live after. Doesn't even matter if you keep believing. All that matters is that you did the one thing the one time and you're good. You put these two things together, revivalism and that easy believism stuff, and you have all kinds of problems in the church in terms of manipulation and pressure and coercion to trust Christ and make a decision for Jesus. People walking aisles and praying prayers and doing all kinds of things, spontaneous baptisms, you name it. All of this stuff is a fruit of these things. These are real problems. Now, how do we respond? That's the issue. There's a couple of ways that many in our day respond. I'm serious-minded people with the best of intentions. We don't impugn motivation. One way of responding is by turning up the temperature on the definition of faith. We're going to weave 
repentance and obedience and the desire to obey into the definition of what faith is. Or another approach is to weave good works into the fabric of our final salvation. Justified by faith, saved by faith and good works. In the first case, saving faith becomes conditioned upon sanctification. In the second, sanctification becomes a ground of salvation. Neither are correct. Both are devastating to the saints. To their assurance, to their peace, to their hope, to their joy, to their perseverance. Remember the two critical errors regarding the relationship between justification and sanctification. One is to collapse the two. Where effectively we are justified via our sanctification. The other error is to rip the two apart as though we can be justified and might not be sanctified because sanctification is something we've got to do. I wonder, how would you address these real problems that exist in the church today? How would you respond? I also wonder, how would you respond to the objection that Paul anticipates in Romans 6.1? If someone were to ask you, should we continue in sin because of grace and the imputation of righteousness, how would you respond? Let's consider what Paul says and doesn't say. We're going to start with what he does not do. Here is how Paul does not respond. Remember the question. Are we just to continue sinning because of grace, because Jesus You know, we continue in sin. Here's what he doesn't say. By no means, here is what the law says. It's not what he says. Here's another thing he doesn't do. Are we to continue in sin? By no means. If you are a real Christian, you would prove yourself legitimate and not a faker, and here's what you need to do. He doesn't do that. What does he say? Paul, are we to continue in sin? By no means, beloved. You have been united to the Savior. What does he say? Paul, should we continue in sin? By no means. You have been baptized into Christ. Where he's going to go in the rest of Romans 6. Paul, are we to continue in sin? By no means. You are free from the tyranny of sin. And you are free from the condemnation of the law. In other words, don't live like a slave anymore. Obey because you can. Are we to continue in sin, Paul? By no means, he says, because you have become obedient from the heart. Don't live like a slave to sin. Obey because you can now and because you want to now. Are we to continue in sin, Paul? By no means. That's not who you are anymore. You used to be that. But you're not that now. Paul's appeal. This is massively important. Paul's appeal is completely 
to the believer's union with Christ and the believer's identity in Christ. That is his appeal. Should we continue in sin? By no means, because we have been united to Christ and we are now in him. He does not appeal to the law to answer this objection. He doesn't use the law to condemn those who are in Christ. He does not seek to unsettle the saints by calling their legitimacy into question. To Paul, it's obvious the assertion that the knowledge of free justification would embolden believers to sin is absurd. Grace, own this, beloved, grace never caused anyone to sin. Amen. The preaching of the utter sufficiency of Christ never caused anyone to sin. You don't need any help sinning. Neither do I. You've never needed any help sinning. Neither have I. Why? It's because sin comes from the corrupt flesh. We sin because we have a corrupt flesh. Now, might we, in the flesh, twist grace in order to justify sin? Sure. The flesh does that. Might we abuse the doctrine of free justification in Christ to make room for us to do what we want to do? Sure. The flesh does that. But what is the antidote, saints? Taking our cue from the Apostle Paul, the antidote is to double down on union with Christ. When it comes to sanctification, the law does guide it. But only Christ is the power. Only the gospel. Union with Christ is how sanctification is realized. This is why we preach Him week after week after week. This is why we come to His table week after week after week. Again, our justification and our sanctification rest on the same foundation and come from the same source. It's not as though justification occurs one way, Sanctification occurs another way. Justification by faith on account of Christ alone. Sanctification by your own willpower. They are in no way, justification and sanctification are in no way contrary to each other. It is true that one is punctiliar and one is a process, but the same foundation and the same source. They are in perfect harmony. They are inseparable. Here's a big one. And they are both certain. Your justification, certain. Your sanctification, just as certain. Isn't that an encouraging thought? As you battle your flesh, as you live life in a fallen world, that you will be sanctified because of Christ. Amen. It must be said, the fact that we have died 
with Christ and are raised with Him to newness of life. The fact that we will live with Christ in future glory. And the fact that we have peace with God now and forever. These things, saints, are the bedrock of obedience. We now love God because it has been made manifestly obvious that He has first loved us. It is this love, God's love for us, that then produces our love to Him. It is this love that is the wellspring of all of our pursuit of obedience. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul wrote elsewhere. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. That concludes the first point of application and reflection. Point two. One word header here, baptism. Baptism. The name of our church is Covenant Baptist Church. Seems appropriate that we would think about baptism a little bit this morning. From arguably the most significant text on it in all of Scripture. What is baptism about? When you walk out of this room today, I hope that if anybody ever asks you that question again, he said, let me tell you what baptism is about. It's about my union with Christ. Look at the text. You see it. Look at the language of Paul. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. He goes on. In being baptized into Christ Jesus, we have been baptized into his death. United to him. His death is our death. In him we died to the law. In him we died to sin. In baptism, Paul goes on, we have been buried with Christ into death so that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too might be raised to walk in the newness of life we've received. The language of our confession, we read it this morning. What is baptism a sign of? It's a sign of our fellowship with Jesus and his death and resurrection. Sounds right. A sign of our being grafted into him. Sounds right. A sign of the remission of our sins. Sounds right. And a sign of submitting ourselves to God through Jesus to live and walk in newness of life. Sounds right. It can also be said that baptism is a sign of our having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And a sign of God's pledge to keep us unto salvation. We're going to consider some other verses in scripture. I want, don't worry about flipping. Just listen to God's word. As you think about baptism and its significance, as we will even be fortunate enough to observe a baptism today. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In baptism we put on Christ. We are one with Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the language of in Christ and in Him is all over that text. But pointedly, the language of verses 13 and 14, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Colossians 2, 11-14. In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. New birth, resurrection life, the forgiveness of sins, the union that the believer has with Christ, that is what baptism signifies. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. You ever thought about the flood like that? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as a removal, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's Peter in his Pentecost sermon where he looks at his Jewish brothers and sisters and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul in Jerusalem in Acts 22 says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. What is baptism? What does it signify? Union with Christ. His death is our death. His righteousness, our righteousness. His resurrection is our eternal life. What does baptism signify? The remission of sins. The new covenant established in Christ, accomplished through Christ, and founded on the blood of Christ is for what? It's for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is the sign of this covenant. In Christ, satisfaction has been made for sins. Atonement, propitiation, all of that has been made for sins. And our sins have been washed away satisfied for and taken away from us. And baptism signifies that. What is baptism about? What does it signify? Submitting ourselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. We have agreed with God, saints. We have turned to Christ in faith. We have turned, therefore, from ourselves, from our sin and from our works. We now live in accord with God's Word. We now walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Baptism is about all of these things. This is why sometimes when the pastors of CBC are meeting with a member of the congregation who's struggling with assurance, one of the things we'll say to them is remember your baptism. Why is that significant? Because in remembering your baptism, you're remembering that God has been profoundly faithful to you. That you didn't baptize yourself, you received it. 
that baptism was about God's faithfulness to you before it was ever about your faithfulness to Him. And because baptism is about your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, what He began, He will complete. Remember your baptism. Point three of application and reflection. This will serve as our conclusion as well. This is just simply implications of our union with Christ. Implications of our union with Christ. Two main ones we're going to consider. I want to begin, though, by reading one sentence from our church's confession, the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 1, on Christ the Mediator. Listen to this sentence. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be His offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by Him. It's pretty substantial. From all eternity, God gave the Son a people. They would be His forever to live with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified in Christ, by Christ. So first implication of our union with Christ is that our union with Christ means our sanctification is certain. We're going to talk about this for a second. Our union with Christ means that our sanctification is certain. Again, I refer to our confession, chapter 13, on sanctification. Just listen to some of these words. Those who are united to Christ and affectionately called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. You realize that's why we need to die in part, right? The flesh will die, and we will be raised, what? Incorruptible, imperishable. From this, the fact that some corruption remains, from this arises a continual, irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In this war, may this comfort you, in this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the reverence of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. Those are some good words to put in your mind and in your mouth. The spirit of Christ will see to our sanctification. Praise God. We will do good works by the power of Christ in us. Praise God. We, be thrilled about this this morning, saints. We are not what we used to be. We are not who we used to be. We have been changed. We now love God's law. We hated it in our flesh. We love it now. We want to obey it. We seek to live in accord with it. We pursue righteousness imperfectly, but really, why? Because Christ is work 
is spirit in and through. We are now, here's another one. We are now grieved at the thought of offending the Lord. Beloved, if you are grieved at the thought of offending him, you most certainly are his. We now want to honor him with our lives. And we battle the corruption of our flesh and we are often weak. And we lament that. Romans 7 is coming. We'll get there. Big question for us as we think and reflect on this for just a second. How would our interactions with one another in the church, in the Christian life, change if we took this to heart? If we took to heart the certainty of our sanctification, how might our interactions with one another change? Would they change? I'm talking in general normal terms here. I don't want to be misunderstood. A couple of disclaimers, right? There are special circumstances. For example, when the discipline of the church is in view. Not talking about that. And none of what we've considered today or are about to think about should be taken to mean that we don't exhort or warn or plead with one another. That would be silly. Paul is going to warn and exhort in the latter portion of chapter 6. We're going to get there. It is that these truths, saints, affect how we go about warning and exhorting and pleading. If we took these truths to heart, we would not be suspicious of one another as we can be. We wouldn't be questioning one another's legitimacy like we do sometimes. We wouldn't be waiting for others to just prove that they were fakers all along. Kind of with that suspicion all the time. We wouldn't be brokers for Satan's doubt in that way. We wouldn't be exacting and threatening in our tone or in our demeanor. We would be patient, would we not? We'd be gentle. We'd play the long game. We would have compassion. We would assume well of one another. We would exhort and encourage and admonish and plead with one another with a posture that would sound something like this. Brother, sister, I know that you agree with the Lord. I know that you love Him. I know you want to honor Him. And I also know that the corruption of the flesh runs deep. I'm with you. I'm with you in the fight. And take heart, because Christ has us. That's the posture. Second thing, second implication of our union with Christ is that our union with Jesus means that our eternal life is certain. So not only is our sanctification certain, our eternal life is certain. Believers are now one with Christ just as truly as we were one with Adam. Nobody in this room debates that, that we were one with Adam. His sin, our sin. His guilt, our guilt. We died with Christ just as surely as we died with Adam, saints. The righteousness of Christ is ours as surely as Adam's sin was. We are one with Christ, and His obedience is as truly ours as if we had done it. We are one with Christ, and His death is as truly ours as if we had suffered it. We are one with Christ. He is our resurrection and our life. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. It's a good word. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. 2 Timothy 2, 11. Believer, let me ask you this question this morning. How is it that you trusted Christ in the first place? You thought about that? It's because the Lord opened your eyes and gave you faith. By His grace, He opened your eyes in such a way where you could see and be rational for the first time in your life. And you didn't know everything, but you knew that you needed Christ. And you trusted Him. Let me ask you another question. How is it that you're still trusting Christ today? I promise it isn't because of something you've accomplished. It isn't because of your strength and power. It's because Christ has kept you. Another question. How is it that you will be finally saved? Is it not because Christ has you? I think it is. Our names have been engraved on the palms of His hands. Our names have been written into a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life from all of eternity. Beloved, it is this certainty that we are justified in Christ and that in Him we will be sanctified and we will be glorified. It is that certainty that fuels and sustains us in the fight. And so we live unto God today. And tomorrow, and the day after that, we press on in the fight. We keep running the race, not chasing after something we don't have, not hoping to attain something that isn't ours yet. But we press on in the fight and we keep running the race because in Christ we've been given heaven. We thank God for him on this Resurrection Sunday as we do every other day. And let's now pray.